Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. Hey, good evening, everybody. Hope you're all well. This is uh, Ronnie K out in uh, New York, and uh, my good buddy Tommy is uh, still hanging his hat in New Mexico. Tommy, how you doing, brother? Good, brother. How are you? Good. Uh, we finally got some good weather here. You were able to fry an egg on the sidewalk two weeks ago, and uh, it finally cooled off, and uh, we got some decent summer weather right about now. It, uh, I think we had about a 20-day stretch. At, uh, we were above 100 every day. But uh, oh, it, no it cooled off to 95 today, so I had to bring a sweater out. Oh, okay. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, it was hot. I mean, it's been hot. The whole Southwest has been hot. You know, You know, here's the funny thing for me. You know, this Arizona said Phoenix was over 100, 110 or better for 30 days. And now everybody's freaking out, going nuts. And it's normally 105. Yeah. I don't really get that. You know, it, it was 110 for 30 days, but it's always 105 anyway. So with that five degree difference, flip those people on the head. I don't get it, you know. But uh, what else is going on at your end of the world? Uh, nothing right at the moment. Uh, wildfire season has uh, not actually hit uh, New Mexico hard yet, but uh, it's coming. It's uh, for as much moisture as we had in the spring. It uh, it has definitely dried out. Yeah, I know the whole. The West Coast is on fire again. I think all that in California is having fires again. Um, we had uh, we had five square feet of brush in Staten Island yesterday, so that's our, that's our hit for the whole season. That's it. We're done. Perfect. Well, you guys uh, got enough smoke out of Canada. You don't need any more. That's true. We haven't had it in a while. It's been a couple. It's, I think it's been about a week or two since the since the weather changed. Actually, it hasn't been bad. So, uh, but the, that's the deal. So uh, I know our, our viewing audience of four nationwide. It's currently uh, wondering who that good-looking guy is in the blue shirt down below me and Tommy on the screen. And and I, I can't tell you how thrilled we are. Tommy and I are absolutely thrilled to have this guy with us tonight uh, on, on our show on the back step. So uh, uh, Jerry Tracy's a 30-plus-year veteran of the FDNY, retired a couple of years ago as a battalion chief out of Queens, uh, did extensive, extensive testing and, and work on wind-driven fires and, and a lot of work on high-rise stuff. And is currently uh, one of of a trio of of guys that put together a book. So I'm going to hold it up. This is their book, High Rise Buildings: Understanding the Vertical Challenge. And uh, basically, I think the neatest part about the book, Jerry, is the book itself is a high rise building. So that was pretty good how you did that. I don't know how you guys thought of that, but pretty cool. Um, the book is, and I want to just double check to make sure I'm, I'm turning. It's 702 pages. And as Jerry knows, because I, I sent him and the other authors a note on, on after I read it, I read it cover to cover because I, I for a couple of reasons. Uh, the, the three guys that wrote the book, Jerry included, are three of the smartest people I've ever met in the fire service. And I knew whatever they wrote was going to be, you know, kind of the gospel. So I, I read it cover to cover, and and sure enough, and and uh, uh, we'll talk more about it. That will happen, Jerry, on tonight, so he can talk about. The process, the book, and and some of the interesting things, and and for the record, 
And I, I know Jerry knows because I, I sent him and the two other authors, Jack Murphy, uh, who's a long time. Uh, he was a fire marshal in New Jersey, uh, a high rise guy, fire safety director, consultant, consulted on some big jobs, uh, built the new Yankee Stadium. He was the fire chief of Woodstock 95 upstate New York. Uh, Jack's been everywhere, man. Uh, and then uh, Jim Murtog, uh, who I know my whole life. I met Jim when I was 17 as a freshman in college. He was my instructor as a young lieutenant. Jim retired in 2000, and, and 20, 23 years later, here he is still contributing to the fire service at the tender age of 82, and we're still good friends. And, and just just three three terrific, terrific human beings that, that I love being friends with, to tell you the truth. Uh, so they, they got together, and, and they put this – what I think is the quintessential high-rise book. We haven't seen a high-rise book in, in eons. Uh, probably everybody talks about the O'Hagan's book and it's from the 70s. Haven't seen anything especially like this. And we're going to ask Jerry a couple of questions about the process and stuff. But let me bring Jerry in. Jerry, welcome up to the backstop. Uh, back backstop, I said. Well, wow, it's like playing baseball. Welcome to the backstop, and, and uh, we're glad to have you here. Thank you, brother. Uh, it's, it's an honor and a privilege uh, to be with both of you, gentlemen. Uh, and you're, you're mentioning my uh, two co-authors. <clears throat> I like to hang around with people smarter than me, and that includes the both of you, by the way, uh, because I learn a lot. Uh, you know, you talk about the process. <clears throat> the three of us really uh, started sitting down in uh, 2016. But in the course of those years, uh, I was still learning so many things, you know, from both Jack and Jim. Uh, Jim is a unique individual in that uh, he has brought into the book concepts of uh, operations that nobody has ever thought of. Uh, and it, I thought it was groundbreaking, and it, it really, really adds to the book. The process was long. We all shared. Uh, we all looked at each other's work as it was put to pen, if you will. Uh, <laughs> One thing we had to do, <laughs> because you could appreciate the fact that, okay, uh, Jack may be from Jersey, uh, but uh, if you're from Jersey and New York, you tend to talk or you tend to write as if you're having a conversation. Well, you talk, right, right. Oh, exactly. And quite frankly, since uh, we were really uh, writing this book, hoping to uh, market it to the inter to the planet, uh, not only uh, the fire service internationally, but, you know, architects, engineers, building owners, managing agents, all of those things uh, internationally, because this is an international problem. Uh, you know, let's say the vertical challenge. And quite frankly, <clears throat> you don't necessarily have to be interested in just high rise to read this book because and you read it cover to cover. And I'm sure you may agree that there's many things that uh, you can attribute to big box stores, uh, uh, any type of fire dynamics, uh, things like that, ventilation practices uh, that you can learn, uh, you know, other than just operating in high-rise buildings. You, you, you know, Jerry, I, I, one of the things I marveled at the book, and 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 uh, you know, it, when, I'm going to hold it up again, guys. It's 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 quite it's quite the work. You know, you could see that the, the the scope of this book, and you can imagine the research that went in. There's a whole chapter just on index where these guys did their research. The research was off the chart. But for me, okay, and, and you guys out there saying you sat and read a textbook, Anthem, and what the hell's wrong with you? I don't know how you did it, but I want to know how you did it. I'd like for you to try to, to tell us this book reads like a story. And, and the first hundred pages in, I called Jack. And I said, Jack, 
I just, I just knocked a hundred pages off and I'm reading it and it's, it's like a James Patterson, like a suspense novel almost. And, and he, and I said, it reads like a story. And Jack said, thank you. Thank you. I said, why? He says, we wanted to tell a story and you guys pulled this off. So how did that come about? I'm curious to know how that thought process was and, and how you guys ended up put, putting in in terms of a story. Cause you know, any anybody would look at you and say, "What are you schmuck? You sat you sat and read a textbook, but it doesn't read like a textbook." So I'm I'm just you know if you could enlighten us how this whole thing came about, it'd be interesting. That was intentional, to tell you the truth, for the very fact. And even my PowerPoint programs, uh, I put them together to be a story. Uh, <clears throat> but even a, a paragraph, whether it be a chapter, whether it be a sentence, it has to have a beginning, it has to have a middle, and it has to have an end. Uh, and if you're going to talk about uh, high-rise buildings, well, when did they really start? I mean, Chicago uh, is, you know, credited with being the birthplace of a high-rise. Uh, but uh, as you read, high-rise began in the days of the Romans. Uh, they had buildings that, uh, in fact, uh, could have been the equivalent of seven stories high. <clears throat> they, of course, they did not have elevators. Uh, so the elite really resided on the lower floors, uh, whereas that, because of elevators, now the elite reside on the highest floors, if you will. And, and another thing, and I was just talking to a chief in the Ninth Battalion just the other day. Uh, he had another term uh, for the phenomenon on, and I call them vanity flaws, uh, such as, let's say, the uh, the Trump uh, Hotel over on uh, 59th Street Circle, if you will. There's numbers, not physical flaws, but numbers that are missing for the fact that, let's just say, uh, a sequence of 10 flaws uh, in the numbering system may be just missing, so that somebody that lives on the 37th floor can say, I live on the 47th floor. You know, it's vanity uh, to say I, I live on the top floor and things like that. Well, that becomes an issue uh, when you're saying what floor the fires are. We had a, a, a chief. His name was uh, Howard Hill. Uh, he was a staff chief. He was in charge of fire prevention. And he was uh, taking up from, uh, let's say, a social affair uh, on the east side, <clears throat> and he was in his car, and he had the Manhattan radio frequency on. He heard a fire come in. Could have very well have been uh, the Yankee pitcher that was learning how to fly, and he went down the East River, and he made a left-hand turn, and he was trying to come back uh, in between, if you will, two high-rise buildings on the Upper East Side, and he crashed into a residential high-rise. And when Howie pulled up, he counted the floors from the street as to the fire floor, but the units upstairs were giving him a different number because there was, in fact, vanity floors. So the numbers didn't coincide with the physical aspects of the building. Uh, so that could certainly become an issue. You know, when you're talking to command, I have a fire on this floor, he might think he has two fires uh, type thing. Uh, so, you know, we even uh, discussed that, if you will. And this chief in the night battalion was, he called, he had another name for it. And I'm going to have to get back to him because this was the chief who uh, was the first two incident commander at the crane fire and collapse that just happened on the West side, 10th Avenue and 41st street uh, in Manhattan. And I'm sure the world saw that because of uh, media today, instant media, social uh, uh, 
uh, social media and such. And there's a couple of uh, fire ground photographers that travel around the city and both of them arrived and uh, uh, let's say we're taking video uh, of that event. And they also capture the radio transmissions from the handy talkies. So you can really, uh, the one video starts off with the 9th Battalion arriving and actually witnessing the crane coming down and some of the debris actually hit their vehicle. Some of the debris actually landed on top of Rescue One uh, as well. But what is really interesting is listening to the radio transmissions of an incident commander in the early stages of an event and the calls that he was making, this gentleman was impressive. Uh, and he made all the right calls. You know, they set up, um, let's say, uh, a, a hand line initially and then a portable monitor from an exposure building because uh, they really couldn't get to the fire from let's say the building under construction, uh, you know, it was too great a distance and they weren't really hitting it. So these are also, you know, methods of learning experiences as well. I found out that the, when the, when the David arm, the boom or the David, whatever you call it, when it came off and it crashed into the building, it, it actually took the elevator out. It took the, the, the instruction elevator out. Cause right. I had asked the question at work of, of somebody you know, why didn't they use the standpipe system in the building on the construction? Because the standpipes, you know, they, they're built with the building by code. And they said it, they did. But they had to walk up 45 flights. So they, right. they tried hitting it from across the street, you know, with, with, a, uh, with a device. Um, so as I, 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 in, in talking about the way the book reads, Jared, uh, just, just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two things. Just real quick. Here's the folks. This is in the preface. This is right in the beginning. So it reads like a once upon a time, okay? At the turn of the 20th century, only a few hundred people lived and worked in high-rise buildings. Today, millions do. In the near future, more than a billion people will live or work in a high-rise building. So they're telling the story about that. So I flipped over to page 179, and they're talking about green buildings. And it says, the intent and concept of a green building design is to reduce its carbon footprint during the construction phase uh, through its completion uh, and use thereafter. This concept can be traced back to 1993 in the United States where the formation of the U.S. Green Building Council, blah, blah, blah. So throughout the book, they're telling this story. And that's, I, I guess I need to know, was it easy or was it difficult to make it read that way? Was it just natural? Did it just, you, you kind of wrote it the way you would speak it kind of thing or? Well, the story had to be told. Uh, because many of us in the fire service don't understand the beginnings of how this came about, to tell you the truth, uh, and the reasons why. Knowing the reasons why, we can almost foretell uh, what, what's coming in our future. And as you know, Chapter 12 uh, it talks about the future, and there's still things coming, if you will. Uh, in Chapter 12, also, uh, I believe Chapter 11, we spoke of, uh, high-rise complexes, mixed-use complexes and things like that. And we spoke about the types of uh, building complexes that are going on, uh, let's say, in Hong Kong uh, and in Europe, whereas uh, the main entrance, you have to go into, let's say, a garden area, a large courtyard to, to enter. But yet there's entrances from the street side of the building that'll put you right into a standpipe, and even in some of those buildings, the standpipes are not in interconnected. 
you have to pick the right stairwell to get up to the apartment and charge the right standpot. But where I'm going with this is uh, a phenomenon that's going to happen because of green uh, construction and, uh, let's say, <clears throat> the advocates uh, of green buildings and things like that. Uh, there's such a thing, and they may be called super blocks, if you will. Uh, and what they're doing is taking portions of a city, and Barcelona, Spain is one uh, that this is occurring uh, right now. And you, you're starting to see some of it in Manhattan, whereas, and I, again, talking uh, to the chief in the 9th Battalion, 8th Avenue used to be six lanes of traffic traveling in one direction. And the 9th Battalion, 4-truck and 54-engine is located on the corner of 8th Avenue and 48th Street. So when returning to quarters or pulling out of quarters, you had to stop eight lanes of traffic. Well, all of that has changed. Now it's only two lanes of traffic. And now you have a lane for a bus. You have a lane for uh, bicycles. You have a walkway. In other words, and what Barcelona is doing is they're doing away with streets altogether. And they're making them walkways. They're putting in gardens. Uh, they're putting in bicycle paths. And their attempt is to cut down on the pollution from the exhaust of all the vehicles that were polluting that city. And their pollution rates were quite high. But what that's going to, uh, let's say, how that's going to challenge the fire service is, okay, they're leaving lanes for emergency service vehicles. Well, I'm, I'm sure their thought is uh, ambulance, healthcare. Uh, response and things like that. Fire trucks can be quite big. They can be quite heavy. Uh, and even some of, let's say, the streets and walkways and pavers that they're putting in, uh, they're putting them in so that rainwater actually drains through them and they collect the rainwater so that they can use it for other things. Well, could that handle the weight of a fire truck, a ladder truck? And if the fire service wants to go green and starts purchasing vehicles with batteries. It's going to make them even that much more heavier. Oh, no doubt. So, I mean, there's a lot of issues no here. Where are the hydrants? Where is the access uh, to the buildings? Uh, do I have to be in that courtyard, in that garden area to access a building so I can get to a fire alarm panel? Or can I access the building from the back from a street and come in? and gain access to a fire alarm panel and gain access to the stairwells. In other words, that would speed up my response to get water on the fire or speed up my response to address somebody's emergency. Right. So green could be great for the, for the public. It may not be so great for the emergency services. So I got a question for you, Jerry. Tommy's show, Tommy showing off his book too. Look at that. Oh, he's looking <laughs> at the... Uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12, when you guys are talking about the future of where this is going. And, you know, some of the things that I've seen, and of course, we don't have a lot of high rise in my neighborhood, but things that concern me are some of the uh, wooden construction features that seem to be popping up and combustible exteriors to the building. Where, where do you guys see the, the future going with that? Are we going to try to improve the fixed fire protection? Or are we going to look at it maybe another way of dealing with some of that stuff? Well, certainly uh, what what's happening, and, and especially in the UK right now, they've enacted uh, the Fire Safety Act 
Uh, and part of that act is to, let's say, take all the combustible cladding off the buildings uh, as soon as possible, if you will. Uh, quite frankly, the cladding that was on Grenfell, even though it was, uh, let's say, combustible insulation, uh, whoever inspected it, and, and it could have been a fault of, ins of inspection or a lack of knowledge on the part of the inspector, whereas the space between the outer <coughs> layer, if you will, uh, the metal composite or the metal uh, outside, uh, the space between it and the insulation was greater than uh, 25 millimeters. It may have been up uh, upwards of uh, 50, uh, which is more than two inches. And the reason I'm bringing that up is there was a test done uh, back in the early 90s, if, if you will, on uh, fires within voids and how uh, they almost gain, uh, let's say, uh, fire headway uh, with the speed of a jet engine. Uh, I had responded to, if you will, uh, a, a fire in a laundry area of a high-rise building on the east side. Uh, I was in 35 truck at the time. Uh, John Norman responded as well. Uh, he was in Rescue One. He was captain of Rescue One. And the fire got into the ductwork uh, that captured the lint behind the dryers. And uh, from the dryer, it went up vertical, went into a horizontal pipe, actually left the room uh, and went across the hall and went into uh, a metal uh, pipe or shaft, you call it a chimney. And the lint was all the way over there, meaning it covering the inside of uh, this ductwork. And when we got into the other room on the other side of the hall, the it was exposed, uh, this here metal shaft, if you will, or ductwork. It was glowing red, and the sound of the fire sounded like a jet engine. In other words, it was creating such a draft, drawing uh, on oxygen, that that's how it burns. So this test that was done many years ago, and I may be mispronouncing his name, like Sheckler or something like that, he already wrote uh, a, a white paper on the fact that these voids in between this uh, composite uh, cladding should not be larger than 25 millimeters, and the Grenfeld uh, uh, cladding certainly exceeded that uh, enormously. So it just added to the fire. But what's going to happen is uh, this combustible cladding is not going to be allowed on buildings uh, greater than a certain height, and that could very well be seven stories. I think I think uh, when, when Grenfell happened, I, I wasn't back in fire prevention yet, but what I've heard is that they, that in the city they, they were allowing for that cladding on buildings up to seven stories. We have them on some uh, city buildings, to tell you the yeah. truth. And, and, you know, the, the other thing that was kind of, while we're on Grenfell, uh, we're kind of kind of – uh, jumped off the page at me was that they had put new windows in that building, but they were all, they were yes. vinyl frame windows. So when the cladding burned up it melted the window frames, the windows fell into the apartments and the fire went into the apartments. That, that was, that was part and parcel to their problem. Uh, 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 well, it goes further than that too. Uh, and there's, let's say the fire service is trying to uh, influence uh, building codes over there. Whereas, throughout Europe and in the UK, buildings were allowed to be <clears throat> built with one single stairwell. Yes, and they're still building them like that. 
I know the that. Guy, the guy, the guy you... wrote the book. I have it right here uh, called uh, about Grenfell. It's called Show Me the Bodies because that's what the government kept saying. Show us the bodies. You don't have anything for a new code. you know. And he said even today, he's, he followed for five years, the last five years, he followed the hearings and interviewed all the people. And he said today they're still building high-rises with one stairwell in the U.K. They're still doing it. How they got away with it uh, at that with that particular building uh, is <clears throat> that stairwell serviced, let's say, a a lobby area that you could then enter your apartments from that lobby, uh, large foyer, and there was a smoke control system that would kick on if uh, you opened up an apartment door and they referred to them as flats, right, if you flats. will. Uh, the fire, well, the smoke control system could handle the smoke from a single flat. But if you had fire in more than one flat on one floor, it might overwhelm the system, let alone fire on many floors contaminating. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, so so I, ha- I have a, a couple of things for you, Jerry. Uh, I, I hope you don't feel like you're on the hot seat, but frankly, you're on the hot seat. So tough shit, okay? That's why we had John. This is all stimulating conversation. I usually do this to Tommy on for a whole hour, so I get to do it to you today, you know? <laughs> but it, it's it's part and parcel to, to what you guys did here in, in this unbelievable work. And you, by, by the way, before, when you talked about being surrounded by smart people, that's a double-edged sword for me. Because when you're around smart people, you feel like an idiot, right? And but but if you open if you're an open-minded idiot, you can learn a lot from those people. So it's kind of a two-edged sword. But I I, I get what you're saying, buddy. Um, let's let's you talk about the elevators in the book. Now I know we have I believe we have two buildings in Manhattan that that now have elevators that are approved for rescue, for evacuation, and for rescue for for the people to use, which of course is counterintuitive to everything we've ever learned and taught people don't use the elevators use the stairs so now we have two buildings with elevators so i'd love to know what your perspective is on it and and and, you know in in allowing or using the elevators you know judiciously uh or not uh, for, for evacuation for rescue and everything else well, the fire service is uh, rather weak in, let's say, educating the public on what we do, why we do it, and why we're there for them, uh, and what we would expect of them. And <clears throat> even uh, in commercial buildings, all types of high-rise in, in hospitals, uh, healthcare centers, uh, which is in this book. Uh, and you were talking about Jack, and I don't mean to get off the subject. Jack was the fire safety director of New York Cornell Hospital, 18 interconnected buildings. Uh, there's nothing more challenging than that. Uh, so he's quite smart. But elevators, <clears throat> the very fact that they are coming about, that uh, firefighters can use them uh, safely and that they're in uh, different shifts. Uh, there's a vestibule between, uh, let's say, the elevator uh, and either the public hall or the stairwell where we will begin our operations, whether it be attack or evacuating people. And the very fact that we would have a clean uh, shaft and elevator to evacuate people is good. Uh, you know, statistics uh, sort of vary on in uh, residential buildings, let alone commercial buildings. How many people are actually disabled? And quite frankly, you don't have to be in a wheelchair to be disabled. You could have any type of uh, disability, whether it be hearing, sight, uh, you may have just had uh, 
you know, fractured ankle or twisted uh, uh, and you're wearing a boot. I mean, there's people, we're not all triathletes. A lot of people need assistance and having elevators available is a good thing because it speeds up uh, getting people to, uh, let's say, uh, you know, medical attention if in fact they need it. Um, whereas, you know, to, to publicize it that, oh, the elevators are fine for you to take, that would mean that they're not going to shelter in place. And quite frankly, if people stay in their apartment in a fireproof multiple dwelling, they are safer there than they are exiting their apartment, going out into a public hall or a stairwell that may very well be contaminated. And that fire in the Bronx, and uh, you and I had had a conversation on it earlier. That was a case where uh, people were exiting their apartment uh, I believe there was 14 fatalities, some of them children, and they were in the holes and stairs. 17. 17 people died there. 17. Uh, and you know what? That that phenomenon, it, it's still going to happen. There's people that, that look, they look out the window, oh, my God, there's fire trucks here. We better get out of here. They just don't know that they're safe. There was a fire on uh, 41st Street and 10th Avenue. <clears throat> uh, Chief Buckeye was the first two incident commander from the 7th Battalion. Uh, fire was maybe on the 28th floor, I believe, and two gentlemen from the 38th floor left their apartment, and they were found in the stairwell. You know, oh, yeah, we, uh, we, they just, we, one of the cases I think about, it wasn't even a high, it was a mid-rise, I believe, but when the fire at Seton Hall, Seton Hall College back 15, 18 years ago, that, you know, there's two, two kids that got burned up severely, and survived, and now they're on the circuit. They go around to colleges talking to students, and they do lectures about surviving a fire in the dormitory. Uh, but they said yes. one of the things they say is, "We were not educated. You know, we were taught from when we were little children to get out, get out, get out, get out." He said, "But if, if right. someone had said, hey, listen, you're six, seven, eight stories above the street. The best thing to do is keep the door close to your dorm room. You know, try to try to clog up the the doorway. You know, with wet towels, kind of thing, and open up your window and." He said, we, we would have survived and we would have been unscathed, you know, for, for at least a little while. But they they try to run through the fire to get out. I mean, that's because, you know, that's the education process. You know, I think the the uh, the uh, the black, the dark horse in this whole thing or, whatever, or the, the, the the variable in the whole thing is human behavior. It's human behavior. Right. And, 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 you know, now we're just getting in the city now with the new code. We're talking about fire safety directors in multiple dwelling high-rise buildings, the, the mega, the mega high-rises, the mega high-rises. Right. So, so we're, we're, we're talking about because people need guidance, people need some training, they they need to look to somebody to help them because they're not going to do it themselves. Uh, so, let, so let me ask you to get further on the elevators, Jerry. What what did they do like with with construction to make the elevator? you know, kind of fail safe, you know, because I know water is always a problem. You get water down the elevator shaft or the sprinkler goes off or whatever it is. So did, did they did they kind of build up build up in front of the elevator almost to make it like not curb-like, but did they kind of? I believe there's a drain uh, in that lobby They put area. drains across the front of the doors, the lobby, the elevator doors? It could very well be in the middle uh, of the uh, foyer. With a, with a pitch? Um, with a pitch toward the middle? Absolutely interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, the sta- the excuse me the elevator shaft is pressurized. That would be a home run, uh, meaning uh, for smoke, but it is in a vestibule. Right. 
that you have to, you know, go out into a vestibule and then uh, you go out into a stairwell and that vestibule stays closed to keep it uh, somewhat uh, uh, smoke free. Um, but uh, <clears throat> water is definitely an issue. As a matter of fact, when I was a captain of Squad 18, Chief uh, DeRosa uh, from operations had issued uh, on a pilot program. Uh, it was uh, like a polyethylene. It was, I wouldn't call it a snake, no, I know what you're but it was about. long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when squad would arrive at a high rise fire, uh, we brought it up and we actually put it in front of the elevated doors to keep uh, water from infiltrating into the shaft. The Chicago fire department uh, puts a, a charged hose line uh, in front of the door to hopefully uh, act as a dike. Just the creating. I don't know of any other departments. Creating a boom. It's like a, it's like a spill boom, right? Exactly. Bob, do you have something? Uh, when, when, I don't want to cut into the Jerry's time, but uh, when when the time's appropriate, I got a, a couple other things to uh, do. But uh, fascinating listening to you, Jerry, as how you guys uh, put this phenomenal work together. And I want to hear more. <laughs> I was intrigued with, uh, let's say, uh, Jim Martel. Intrigued with things such as battle planning, you know, um, and, and some people might think that we stole something uh, from Vinnie Dunn because he speaks of battle space. Uh, battle planning is a step up from, let's say, pre-fire incident planning or pre-fire planning that really just offers and provides static information, which is good. You need that static information. Because if you're not uh, familiar with the building uh, and how that can come about is the first two units to, let's say, uh, four truck. We're first due at the units on uh, 50th Avenue in the 50s, uh, 40s and 50s. If we're out at a job and now other units from either downtown or uptown are responding, they're not familiar with the building. And the static information helps them with, OK, the type of construction, how tall it is. Uh, where the, maybe the fire alarm panel is and so on and so forth. But what battle planning provides is knowing, let's say, the floor or the detectors uh, that are going off, whether they be uh, smoke or water flows, things like that, you can punch up and get a floor plan of the fire floor and then based upon fire conditions. And in the book, we spell out conditions that everyone can agree to. And why I say that is... I could have a young lieutenant that's worked in, uh, let's say, slow areas, uh, and I wouldn't call them slow areas. I would call them areas of the city that have very few high-rise. Uh, and this lieutenant, young lieutenant, could uh, go up to a fire floor in a commercial building and be uh, confronted with a smoke condition that he gets on the radio and he's calling the chief to say, Chief, I have a heavy smoke condition. And now in the chief's mind, uh, we've got a, a difficult fire. Uh, my problem of smoke is going to, uh, you know, be throughout the building, so on and so forth. But a seasoned lieutenant who's worked in these areas might go up there and say, I either have a light smoke condition or a medium smoke. We needed, we needed conditions that everybody could agree to and understand. And the conditions we came up with our levels one, two, and three. We made it simple. Levels one is fire that you could actually put out 
with a water extinguisher or, or an extinguisher. Uh, or maybe just put a cover on a pot on a stove or the use of one hand line. And it would also mean that it's fire, smoke, and tenability. Smoke, tenability. The smoke condition on a level one is not going to spread beyond the space of the event, if you will. That's a level one. And let me also say, if one hand line is being stretched, it's a given a backup line is going to be stretched. So a fire that one uh, an extinguisher or one hand line can serve, okay, a backup line is coming. But a level two fire is a fire that's going to require the flow of two hand lines. Now it's fire, smoke, and tenability. The smoke is definitely going to, let's say, spread beyond the space of origin. So now that makes the chief aware, <clears throat> okay, uh, in my experience and understanding, as a chief, as an incident commander, in this particular building, if fire is going to spread beyond that space, okay, if it's residential, it's going into a public hall, it's going to go to the elevator shaft, it's going to go to stairwells. If it's a commercial building, it's going to go to other voids, it's going to go to, uh, uh, let's say, utility shafts and things like that. Uh, where is it going to go? Uh, and then based upon that, I may deploy units to those areas for a search. And not only will they search, they will providing me with a reading on their carbon monoxide uh, meters that most officers in the FDNY carry on their handy talk. And that'll give me, you know, more definite information. Uh, so a level two fire is smoke spreading beyond the space and I need two hand lines. So we're talking about a flow of 500 gallons of water a minute or coming in it from different angles. In other words, uh, it's gonna be a little bit of a challenge. A level three fire is a fire that's gonna require the flow of master streams. And of course, smoke is gonna be a problem throughout the building. Uh, this is going to call for additional alarms above what our matrix of response in New York City for a fire in a high-rise building. It's basically an all hands. And I say that in, in such a, a manner that New York City uses the term all hands. And it means that's the amount of engine companies responding to put two hand lines in operation and the number of truck companies to handle a fire on the fire floor, the floor above, and possibly roof operations for the given structure. So a hand line, I mean, an all hands for a private dwelling, uh, you know, is, uh, all right, three and two, three engines, two trucks. But an all hands in a high-rise residential or commercial building, four engines, four trucks, you get the rescue, you get a squad, uh, you're getting a ventilation support group, you're getting a CFR engine, a certified first responder. So the, the matrix of response is required to put two hand lines in operation. Now for high rise building, we pair up two engine companies. The first two engine companies, they man the first line because they need the assistance of a second engine just to get that line in operation. But it also gives them the staffing that if the nozzle and backup fire are running out of air and they haven't put that fire out. We have a resource standing by that are not on air yet. They may not have to be on air yet that they can quickly rotate, relieve and rotate right away. And then the other uh, two engines is for a second hand line. 
And again, you have your resources of rotation and relief built in, built into the response. And the amount of truck companies, at least for a commercial building, we put two truck companies on the fire floor because the real estate could be the size of an acre of land. The original towers was 200 by 200. That was an acre of land. And to search that, you need the staffing. Uh, residential, it's a little different. Uh, the first two truck companies splits their team. The inside team goes to the fire apartment. Uh, the outside vent uh, goes immediately to the apartment directly above. And that's for a few reasons. Uh, that firefighter will have with him, with her, uh, the smoke curtain to deploy it if needed. But they're also there to give us their size up of the situation. Once they get into the apartment above, they do a couple of things. They actually leave that apartment door open so that when they go to a window in that apartment, they open it up. It immediately tells them if I'm on the windward side of the building or the leeward side of the building. If the wind is in my face, I could have a wind-driven fire here. Uh, but I could look down, and if I see smoke coming from a particular window, I can give the units on the fire floor the layout of the fire apartment, meaning the physical layout of the walls. Because most, most, not all, most apartments, the room arrangement, not the furniture arrangement, the room arrangement would be the same floor to floor. So they could advise the units downstairs. I can see smoke coming from, a, as soon as you walk in, you're going to walk in past the kitchen into the living room, but you have a hallway directly to your left. The first room on your left is a bedroom, and that's where the fire is because I can see smoke coming from it. They give you the layout of this space below. So we've built in, let's say, our high-rise operations for, one, information purposes, intelligence, and being able to control the ventilation rather than just sending a firefighter up there to take windows indiscriminately and having units downstairs, uh, you know, be subject to a blowtorch when it's a wind-driven fire. You know, Jeff, you, you talk about staffing, you know, very few fire departments in the world can, can staff a high-rise job like that. You know, Boston can, Philly can, Chicago. There's only a handful of fire departments. And the discussions I've had with, with people from other places – you know, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I do, I have about 10% of your knowledge on high rises. I had a couple of them in my day. I had two, two or three fires and I was around them a lot. And I did a lot of planning and pre-planning. I had a couple of fires in my day. But when I talk about operations, I, we, we start to talk about what has to be done and based on how many people you need and, and all that. And I have somebody keep a tally in the back of the room. I say, write this down. You need two companies for that. That's that's another eight guys or ten guys. And then you need a company for this. And we talk about lobby command and we talk about lobby control and then systems. You need a systems unit and you need you know, all these units, you know, the staging and 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 then at the end, at the end of that portion of the day, I say, uh, what are you up to? He said seventy eight people. <laughs> so so I'd say, Okay, so how many of you in this and a lot of my lecture is in New Jersey. I said, how many of you can get 78 people to the scene within about 15 minutes? And they all go like this. You know, probably, I don't know, Newark doesn't have 78 on shift. Jersey City, I don't think. Tommy, would Jersey City have 78 guys on a shift? I don't think so. Not that many, right? Yeah, so so I said to them, if you're not thinking like that and being pro, if you're not proactive on a fire like this, then you're going to be so far behind the eight ball, you never catch up. So So I guess just to get them thinking about, Staffing, you know, and I and I and I kind of kid around. I say we don't need rigs. 
Put your people on a city bus, bring them. Just you know, bring your gear, bring, bring your tools. You know, we don't need we need people. It's people intensive. It's people intensive, and and, and it makes him think like, holy cow, maybe we're not ready for this. You know. Well, <clears throat> uh, all the let's say size up information uh, and intelligence that's written in the book of what to look for. Uh, for okay, what do we? Let's just residential, if you will. Uh, we do explain what visuals might be indicative of. I have a wind-driven fire. I mean, you can look at the flag, uh, the the flag that's hanging outside your firehouse to know that you have wind today. Uh, but you know, arriving at that building in that that whatever height you're at uh, to understand what you've got, uh, you could go into the adjoining apartment. And as a matter of fact, we recommend. Uh, establishing an area of refuge uh, before you start operations, because if things go bad, uh, you, you've got a place to just come out if you can close the door and go into your area of refuge. Uh, but, you know, having, let's say, limited staffing, you could flank a fire in a residential building. You can come in from the adjoining apartment, uh, go to an adjoining wall, uh, near the outer portion, meaning the outer wall of the apartment, and uh, introduce water from there. If you can calm it down, you possibly come in through the front door. If not, make the wall, uh, that the hole that much bigger and come in with the wind at your back and put your fire up. If there's balconies, you can do that. So, I mean, we offer options uh, of, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, and sometimes those departments with limited staffing, these going to uh, be your choices of attack right. because you don't have the staffing, you know, I, I, to do it. To do. I agree. You know, and the, the thing is when you, when you talk to those limited staffing uh, departments, they kind of sit there and I, they, they get that, that little bit of a glaze. And I, and I say, what, what's going on? What's going through your mind? God, I hope it don't happen tonight. I got to go to work, you know, so. But, but I, I said, yeah. well, I said, but this, it's a matter of planning. You know, if if you already know, you know, if if and I'll just take it, I'll just say Jersey City, and they, they got forty story or thirty story high rise. Let's say thirty story high rise. Okay, if 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 they're not thinking and planning and pre planning and battle planning all that stuff, they're going to get caught short. You know, and that's what I tell them in the in the room. I said, if you're not thinking about this, you're going to get because this is this is a what what uh, Gordon Graham would say a high frequency a low frequency, you know, a high high uh, consequence event. It doesn't happen that often, but when it happens, it's you know, so so we we do have those discussions about being prepared. I'm going to shift gears here, my friend. Let's talk about something everybody hates to talk about, but I think you have broad shoulders enough to talk about it. So, so you had to go write a book, man. Now you're going to be known as the guy who kind of knows most of this stuff. You know what I'm saying? I hope so. Hope so. <laughs> Let's talk about communications, uh, radios, uh, 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 internal communications, the fire phones. And just the whole, where do you see it now and where do you see it maybe going? Uh, what's the next thing uh, for comms inside of high rise? Well, certainly, uh, let's say the innovation and technology that's uh, come about uh, in my years uh, and even after I retired. Most certainly, we were dealing with uh, the building itself uh, was absorbing radio signals Uh Whereas from the fire floor, you'd have difficulty speaking to uh, the incident commander, uh, you know, who would be in the lobby. Uh, sometimes uh, 
the aide being in a car outside the building, if we can get near and out a window, we could communicate to them and they'd relate to the chief. Or if you stood next to uh, the elevator shaft, believe it or not, uh, the chief could get you in the lobby because it's an unobstructed shaft, you know, even with the elevator car in it. And then uh, a firefighter, Mike Stein, uh, what a brilliant young man. He was a captain. He was a firefighter in 103 truck, uh, but he's a master electrician and a master plumber. And he actually, in his garage, built a radio uh, that could transmit and receive uh, on our frequencies. I thought, I thought that was an urban myth that, that one of the firemen built that new radio in his garage, but it's the truth, huh? Oh, absolutely. Oh, no <laughs> uh, he's, he's brilliant. Mike Stein. Uh, and it transmits at 25 watts, whereas the handy talkie only transmits uh, at 2 watts. And that became uh, known as the post radio. But this same individual has, uh, let's say, invented ARC. Uh, ARC actually stands for, uh, uh, you know, a type of system in a building. Yeah, it's the aux uh, to, auxiliary, auxiliary radio communication system. We have correct. an aux unit and fire prevention that goes out and tests those and makes sure that they're, they're approved. Our, our fire alarm in your hands. Like. And it could very well be that uh, one of the larger radio manufacturers, and I'm not sure which one, have, uh, let's say, purchased the rights to his patent on that. But in any event, that also assists. Leaky cables uh, are an asset, if you will, and they used in subway systems and tunnel systems. And basically a leaky cable uh, receives your signal, your radio signal, and carries it on a cable either through a tunnel or up into the building and out on the floors. And that enhances uh, our radio transmissions. But what will come about will be uh, devices that could be set up wireless almost uh, throughout a building that uh, capture radio signals and, and then either retransmits them on another frequency uh, and then transfers it back to us uh, on our frequency. Uh, in other words, technology is evolving to the point where that's going to assist us tremendously. Uh, hospitals, let's put it this way. Uh, you know, Neil Cornell, 18 interconnected buildings. You could arrive at in one particular building looking at a an alarm panel and it's saying, well, uh, you have to leave here. You have to go uh, through this hallway and you're basically going to wind up in another building. Uh, and, and now you're really screwed with uh, communications unless you bring a post radio with you uh, and things like that. So communications is difficult, uh, very difficult. And even <laughs> you say human uh, the human factor. Before you transmit something, think about what you want to say. Make it short and sweet. Uh, there's those guys that uh, uh, when they were receiving vaccinations as a kid, uh, they got vaccinated with a photograph needle. Uh, they get on the radio and they just don't shut up. It's like the greatest story ever told. It's like, oh, my God, not him. Jerry, we, uh, uh, we refer so, to that as verbal diarrhea. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you got you got you got to know you're in for it when when a guy says "engine tree to command." I was born as a, as a poor child on the Lower East Side, and he starts right from the beginning. You know, you know you're in trouble. You're right off the bat. 
<laughs> or you get a screamer. So let me let me ask you something, Joe. You know, for a long time, in in, in particularly in New York City and, and in a lot of other large cities, it, we're requiring the installation of a hardwired high-rise fire phone system, the red phones, and the, and the, the oh, boss yeah. has got one in the lobby. Uh, do, do those systems? Do they do their job? Do they work? Are, are they are they are they helping us out? Absolutely. Okay. But you, you meaning, as a firefighter, as an officer, know know that they're there, and and use them. Uh, I was privileged many years ago. Uh, I was studying for lieutenant, and I attended these courses uh, for promotion uh, preparation. It was a school referred to as fire technology, fire tech. Uh, I did very well uh, with them. Uh, they would, uh, let's say, host uh, an exam uh, once every six months, and whoever wrote the highest mark could go to school free for the next six months. Oh, good. And wow. I went. I went to school free for a year. That a boy. <laughs> After I was promoted lieutenant, they asked me to come and be an instructor. Uh, and with that, uh, of course, uh, I accepted. Uh, I'm. I'm really not. You know, in shy, <laughs> I can get really? in front of the <laughs> But I mean, some of the subjects you have to present can be rather dry uh, and difficult to uh, uh, study. Uh, and some students might say, "Well, I'm not going to study that. Uh, I all I want to do is pass the test." So, and where I'm coming from and where I'm going with this is the New York City Building Code uh, on high-rise buildings. After the two fires, it was actually two, one of which is really spoken about more commonly, and that's the fire that was that occurred in uh, one New York plaza in 1970. I think 70. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, whereas <clears throat> there was one fatality, excuse me, there was three fatalities, four people trapped in an elevator, rescue one, and I'm not sure the engine company that really protected rescue one uh, to go in on the fire floor, open the elevator and get these people out. Uh, there was one survivor, three fatalities. And of course that started John O'Hagan on his quest uh, to have, uh, you know, uh, different laws uh, brought into the building code. But it was three months later, there was a fire in Midtown. Uh, it was on Third Avenue and it was almost the same event. Uh, there was the people on the fire floor trapped in an elevator. Uh, there was fatalities there as well. So from that, <clears throat> John O'Hagan was successful to have a local law passed, and it was called Local Law 5. It came out in 1973. And <clears throat> I read the codes, if you will. Uh, I wanted to know the codes. And not every student studying for promotion uh, for any rank, wanted to read the codes because they were difficult. It was almost like uh, reading a lawyer's brief uh, before they go into the courtroom. Uh, but in that uh, code, if you will, there would be areas, places, and you're talking about sound-powered phones, places in the building where available to you would be two-way communications, and of course it would be a sound-powered phone. And where were those areas? And I came up with a, an acronym, and I think it was WAMI, W, uh, which was a warden phones, 
a air handling uh, room, mechanical equipment room, elevator machinery room, so on and so forth. And why I passed that out to the students at FireTech was, and I was a lieutenant in Fort Truck at the time. If you're up in a high-rise building and you can't communicate with the incident commander and you're running low on air and you have a firefighter in distress, whether it be a medical distress or any type of distress, you can go to any one of these areas and find a sound-powered phone and talk to the lobby. That might save your life. And if you don't read the codes, you would never know that. You know, it's not just passing a lieutenant's test. Uh, I thought all of that stuff was yeah, important. Yeah, and, and, and it is, you know, and I've asked the question, you know, how many of you guys have seen, and I have a picture of it up on the screen, the fire phones hanging in a box and, and the, the ICs. How many of you have seen this in your buildings? They all raise their hand. How many of you have ever practiced with them to see and how they work? No hands go up. I said, you got to get out into your district and you got to try this shit. It's too late. When you got fire coming out the windows, it's too late. You got to go out. How about this? Fort Truck, uh, certainly our administrative district was rather interesting. You know, St. Patrick's Cathedral, we would inspect it. Rockefeller Center was in my administrative district. I'm in the lobby of Rock Center. And we're, we're there for an emergency. This is not for a fire. Uh, and I went over to the elevator bank. And the elevator keys in New York City, for the general audience here, it's a common key. It's referred to as a 1620 key. I put the 1620 key, and I am now recalling the elevators of the bank, just a particular bank. I just want to see if it works. And it didn't work. I turned the key. The elevators did not come down. I said, boy, that's rather interesting. So, you know, I said to the fire safety director, you may want to check that out. I went back <clears throat> a day or two later. And what the issue was, this is an Art Deco building. I mean, it's like Radio City Musical and things like that. There's brass ornaments and uh, fixtures all over the place. I mean, the key switch to the elevators was brass. They have a company, and I think it's Revco or something like that, that goes around the city and polishes brass for all of these buildings throughout the city. And the, pro the process, part of the process before they polish it up is they give it an acid wash. The acid wash ate away the tumblers in the key switch wow. to recall the elevators. You'd never know that if you didn't try it, right, Chair? How would you know? There you go, brother. How would you know? That that's and that's that's mind blowing. Actually, that's like <laughs> think about that. I can see Come it on, on Tommy's face. I'm here. <laughs> Let me just see if this works. <laughs> Holy shit! Exactly. Oh my god. Uh, so so do so do you, do you think you think for the future? Because you guys write about the future. Do you, so do you think for the future, the hardwired fire phone system stays for a while? Oh, I hope okay. so. Uh, it's like a backup system. Do you know, <clears throat> and I'm not sure that the the ships that are sailing on the high seas and certainly Coast Guard ships, uh, they have a hardwired uh, phone system throughout the ship. I mean, you're surrounded by metal. So I'm not sure how radios work, uh, you know, uh, on board these ships, uh, sound-powered phones. And believe it or not, 
uh, I was in the Navy from 1964 to 68 uh, on a small ship that really our main purpose was to carry uh, Navy frogmen, the UDT, underwater demolition teams, and SEALs. The SEALs were brand new to the Navy. They were, they were only formed in 1961. Uh, but my job on what was the fire attack team, because you're out at sea, you got a fire, <laughs> you're putting it out yourself. Uh, my position, I wasn't on the nozzle. But I was on the sound-powered phone right at the right where the attack team was operating, and I had to give my reports to the bridge on uh, what we so were doing. You were so telling I was us upstairs how, what kind of progress you were making. Exactly. Yeah. No. Everybody. You know. Interestingly enough, not to get off the subject, but but when I was when I was working Eastern Connecticut, they, they had a uh, they had a fire on a sub, not at Groton, but up in up in Maine in the base. Okay. Half, uh, half a billion in damage on the sub, and 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 uh, the admiral was kind of standing there at the base at the time in, in Maine, screaming at the base fire department to get on that sub and put the damn thing out. And the chief is going, "We don't do it. The ship's forces fight that fire. We don't fight that fire. We're here for the base. Well, we know we're structural guys. We we don't have the training. We don't have the tool." He's screaming at the chief. Chief's going, "Sorry, I'm not doing it." So and and for some crazy reason. Um, as mutual aid came in, they called mutual aid from uh, the surrounding county in Maine. Uh, the fire departments and the mutual aid, they were going into that submarine. It's amazing they didn't kill anybody, Jerry. Amazing they didn't kill anybody. But they now so look just let me let me finish my thought here, Tom. Uh, so at, at at that point, the the chief at, in the Groton base, who I knew because that was part of our yet, you know, he called a little meeting and brought in ten chiefs and say, you know, listen. This this was bad. You know, we had this. It was an arson fire. It was a construction a uh, a construction contract that started the fire, so you can have a half a day. Uh, but he said, "We're going to take you guys on board a sub." And it was in Dry Dock. We went on to Dallas, and he said, "When we get done, tell us what you think." You know, we need to, we need to have a plan for this thing. And we came out and we said, well, looked at his name was Tom. Great guy. I said, "You're screwed, pal." <laughs> Because that's that's a whole nother like walking in and, and you'll appreciate this, Jerry. Walking into the sub, the guy next to me, the chief next to me said, This looks like a high rise building laying down. He he actually used that term. He said, It looks like a horizontal high rise to me. I said, Okay, let's go and look around. And the, the construction, the walkways, the catwalks, the the the, the lows, it's it, and, and if, if the ship's forces can't do it, it can't be done. You know, not not every just like these these two poor guys that from Newark that went onto that boat two weeks ago to fight those car fires. That's not their bellywick. It's not they're they're not trained for that. You know, it, it comes down to, to to being familiar. So, uh, I, I you know we 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 look at at some of these things and we have, sometimes we have to say this one's not ours. You know, once in a while you got to just this one's not ours. But Tommy, go ahead. No, I, 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 to cut you off. I try not to get too wound up, and you have taught me to keep my gun holstered until the, the reports come out. But as you know, uh, as a young volunteer in New Jersey, I spent three years on the Newark Fire Auxiliary and, and learned a hell of a lot. And that was back when Newark actually had a Marine division. The John F. Kennedy was the fire boat there, and they had guys assigned to it. Nowadays, uh, I think they got one of those little Homeland Security boats, and I don't know whether anybody staffs that or not anymore. But uh, next month when we're on, uh, I'd like to have an in-depth conversation with you for sure of some of the things that I've learned looking at the difference 
between marine uh, firefighting and land-based firefighting. And did these guys even know what they were walking into? Uh, it tore my heart out when I saw that. Uh, I've still got uh, some strong connections to folks in the city. And uh, just uh, I can't I can't put the words together how tore up I am about this. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. I, I, I get it. Um, we, we, we got, we're on about an hour. That's your, no, our normal allotment. Uh, Jerry, I'm, I'm going to ask you for some, um, we'll call it closing comments uh, and then we're going to, we'll close out the show, but we, we'd like to hear from you, you know, about whether it's about the project, your co-authors, maybe, you know, highlight something that, that everybody should know, you know, uh, about the book or what's something in the book that say, Hey, you know, even, even if you're a, you know, you're a, you're a small, volunteer fire department in the farmland, maybe you can use it or maybe they can't. So why don't you give us your closing um, thoughts, Jeff? Like I had mentioned up front, even if you don't respond to high-rise buildings, uh, there's something in this book uh, for everybody uh, to tell you the truth. Uh, you bring up, you know, this uh, tragic event in Newark. Chapter seven talks about gathering building intelligence and it's, uh, you know, know before you go. Uh, Quite frankly, that department, it, if they knew that they would be called upon uh, for shipboard firefighting, uh, then it behooves you, whether you have a Marine division or not, uh, to go learn what the challenge is, uh, familiarize yourself. Uh, and as I said, I worked in uh, Midtown, Fort Truck, 54 engine. Uh, the West Side Piers was really right down the block. We would have passenger ships uh, come in on weekends. Uh, they would, you know, disembark uh, the people that, you know, sailed on a cruise for a week and to then take on a whole new uh, uh, contingent of uh, tourists that were going to sail somewhere. Uh, and on Saturday mornings, I'd take a ride over there with four truck and 54 engine. And uh, the pier is uh, two stories tall. Uh, the people that are disembarking and those that are uh, uh, going on for a new cruise, they enter the ships from the second floor. On the first floor level of the pier is where all the goods and stores come in, food, uh, supplies, uh, the ship's crew. They uh, come on board down there. And that's where I would show up and uh, go to, I guess, the quarter deck uh, and ask for the safety officer. And meeting with that safety officer, I would just say, I understand if you have a fire on board this ship, you're going to uh, tackle it uh, with your crew members first. If you ever had a fire that was beyond your control, I guess we're it. And he says, yeah, uh, that's true. I says, well, we'd like to become familiar with the ship. And, in, and this was long before uh, the requirement of a box any ships that come into New York, uh, the New York area, they're required to now have uh, a box uh, with information inside of it. It's uh, uh, impervious to weather and things like that. It has layouts of the ship, uh, uh, information about the ship, uh, you know, intel, that's static information. It's not a battle plan. But before that, <clears throat> we boarded the ship and found out the couplings, of course, uh, hose couplings. Not compatible. Not New York's not right. compatible. Yep. Probably national standard or some other thing. 
No, it's international. Yeah, most of those ships are from from other countries. They're from overseas, right? Exactly. So, and they, of course, would supply water to their standpipe system. Of course, their standpipe system is not four and six inch rises. So, I mean, you're, you're going to get a, a minimal flow and pressure. <clears throat> uh, but if we wanted to use our equipment, we needed the adapters. And uh, but we also looked at the challenge. Now, Ford truck was a disciplined truck in that. If we were going to places that were difficult for search uh, and access, we certainly used search ropes. <laughs> and, you know, these firefighters, this was a, a, an automobile carrier. Now, I'm not sure if it was roll on, roll off, meaning it they was. drove them on, drove them off. Well, what do you think the spacing was between each car? Well, that they there wasn't any. Exactly. When the guys parked the cars, they probably had to come out the window and, and walk on top of the car to get out of there because I, I don't think they could even open the doors. Well, they probably exited out the the, the one side that they could until they got to the last car, car. And, then they had, and then they had to come out the window. Oh, you're absolutely yeah. right. Uh, but what does that mean for fighting a fight? Uh, you know, how about this? High-rise buildings, and down in Miami right now, uh, it's becoming common, and it'll become common throughout the world. They have structures uh, just for parking that's automatic, meaning you pull into what is like a, a, a garage area, and hold on just a second. I have to plug in my charger because it just told me my battery's low. I'll be right back. I'm going to plug this right in. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, when you're on the back step with, with Jerry Tracy, you get you get turned on, turned off, and plugged in all at the same time. So we we were trying we look. were trying to do this Jerry Tracy unplugged, but it didn't work. We ran out of juice. So, so now we're now we're plugged back in. This is cool. Well, you, you drive into what appears to be a garage, and now your car is basically on a platform that's going to be taken away. You come out of that space and let's say you punch in your name, your um, maybe your uh, credit card if it's uh, if you have to pay or whatever, and that door closes. And now automatically it takes that platform and puts it somewhere in a storage. High rack storage, almost like uh, Home Depot or Lowe's. Okay. God forbid one of those cars goes on fire. What is the access for firefighters? It's catwalks. Okay, you're coming out of a stairwell with a hand line. You're operating. Have you ever operated off a catwalk? <laughs> uh, what's the challenge? Do you have to tie off? Do you need to, uh, you know, harnesses? All of these issues, has anybody looked into it? So here's, here's, here's what I got from, from, from your wrap-up. What I got was the first one of the, you said no before you go. We know, we know Jack Murphy kind of, Kind of did a whole series of articles, you know, K by G, no before you go, K by G, and and I think that that's the takeaway from the book yes. for every operation that you might do, no matter what it is, is no before you go, whether it's shipboard, Amen. whether it's silos on a farm, uh, whatever, a rescue, confined space. I think it covers the gamut. So so I I, I guess the, the takeaway is no before you go. Uh, so I, as yes. we wrap up. Uh, uh, Jerry, we can't thank you enough for, for joining us on the Backstep tonight. This was phenomenal. Uh, we thank you for your friendship, your brotherhood, your knowledge, your willingness to share your knowledge. That's so key. 
Uh, folks, the book is outstanding. It's going to be the best hundred bucks you ever spent. Trust me on this one. It's going to be the best hundred bucks you ever spent. So we well, can't thank you enough, Jerry and, and Tommy. Uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to you for some closing comments. And just uh, uh, if you're interested in the text, fire engineering books and video. And, uh, you know, even though I don't deal with a lot of high rise, there's still a lot of lessons within this uh, publication that will assist you throughout your career. And uh, I've got the, the roll call, Ron, whenever you're ready. Yeah, give, give well, one more second. One more second on the roll call. <clears throat> you know, Tommy, you bring up a great point because, as Jerry and, and, and like I thought said before in the beginning, when I read the book, I started. I'm reading things and I'm going, "No shit, I never heard that. No shit." So I made a no shit list and I sent it to Jerry, wow. Jack, and Jimmy, and I said, "This is my no shit list for the book." You know, but but when when you say that it touches other things, Tom, you're on one of the in the very beginning of the book. They're talking a little bit about old style construction and heavy timber, and one of the things in there is when you walk in a heavy timber building, there are no ninety degree cuts on the wood. Everything is shaved off on a Fire. what do they call that? Chamfered. A cha- chamfer cut, you call it? Chamfered cut. Yeah, the fire cuts are at the end of the beam right. where it enters the wall, so it doesn't pull the wall down when it collapses. Right, and you got the, a ch- the chamfer is instead of that sharp angle, they just shave it off and make it like a forty-five in there because the fire will have less propensity to catch that wood without the sharp edge. That was my first no shit in the book. I think that's on page twenty, <laughs> wow. and then it was off to the races. Yeah, so there's so much in here that you can get just for daily operations in other places. Uh, but again, folks, it it reads like a story. They, these guys somehow pulled off this miracle and said, "We're going to tell a story," and they actually just tell the story. Dynamite, Tommy. Would you would you do our roll call, uh, Jerry? What we do at the end of every show is we pay tribute to the, to the firefighters who've been killed in the line of duty since the last time we were on the air. So we're going to go. And to the that last now. time we were on the air was uh, July third, and since then there's been seven line of duty deaths across the nation. Of course, Augusto uh, Akabu and Wayne Bears Brooks Jr. from the Newark, New Jersey Fire Department made the supreme sacrifice on July 5th while fighting a shipboard fire in Port Newark. Uh, Ian Strickler from Frederick County, Virginia, also on July 5th, uh, passed away from a medical emergency during training. James Spot Cleary Jr. from Bramwell, West Virginia, passed away on uh, the 11th of July from a vehicle rollover uh, that occurred while they were out of the vehicle. The vehicle rolled over them while they were out of the vehicle. Uh, Jordan Melton from uh, Birmingham, Alabama, on June 17th, was shot and killed at the firehouse. Uh, uh, one of his brother firefighters was also shot during this incident, but survived uh, that part. Jeffrey Norman from Memphis, Tennessee, passed away on July 19th from uh, being trapped in a fire. And uh, Evan Brown from Honey Grove, Texas, on uh, July 30th, uh, was ejected uh, from apparatus on a rollover accident. As always, uh, we ask that you uh, keep uh, their families and your thoughts and prayers and to heed the lessons learned that these guys have left behind. They made the sacrifice 
uh, for us, and we need to pay attention to what those lessons are. With that, Jerry, man, it was great to see you, and uh, love having you on the back step. I'll quit calling you Canterman's grandfather. <laughs> he looks better than me. What are you kidding? The guy still has his hair for crying out loud, you know? Gee whiz. But they actually last week I, I went to the barber, okay, for haircut. I says, Jerry, I says, can you part it in the middle? You know what he said? You know what he said to me? I got to pull one out. You have 13, he said to me. I got to pull one out. So that's the deal. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the back step till we meet again. Be safe. Uh, stop the red. Use your head. Wear your seatbelt. Wear your mask. Take care of yourselves. Get your checkups done. And hug your kids and hug your wives and hug them tight when you say goodnight. So don't forget to do that. I'm going to turn it back over to our producer, Mark, to get us on out of here. Mark, it's all yours. Stay safe, away. everybody. Oh.